0: Good morning, my name is Ryan, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're reading our scripture for us this morning from the Gospel of Mark chapter 3. Uh, if you're paying close attention, which I know many of you are, you'll notice that we're skipping over a few verses um, after we finished with uh, part of chapter 2 last week, we are jumping into part of chapter 3. And uh, rest assured, we are not skipping those portions of this gospel because they're less important uh, or because we're trying to uh, dodge some thorny issues. In fact, we're in the middle of one in this passage, as you'll see in just a minute. Uh, but we are trying to make our way through as much of the gospel of Mark as we can in a reasonable amount of time. And we do live in a town where people tend to leave pretty often. So uh, in an effort to give you uh, the whole counsel of God, that is as much of the Bible as we can, uh, we are going to make our way uh, expeditiously through the gospel of Mark. We are going to preach through most of it, but not every single Verse of it, which is part of the reason why uh, we've encouraged you to pick up one of these reading plan bookmarks because this takes you through even the parts that we don't cover on Sunday, including some resources through that QR code on our website, which will help you study those portions as well. So we're going to start in just a moment in verse 13 of chapter 3, and I'll just give you a little bit of a catch up as to what happened from. The end of the last passage to this one. Actually, a lot has happened um, because uh, in a short amount of time, Jesus's popularity has soared. So much so, as you saw last week when Terence was preaching, um, some friends had to lower Jesus through the roof of a house. And if you remember why, the reason for that is the house was packed out. Uh, there was, it was standing room only, no one could get to Jesus. And this just continues, not just in that place, but everywhere Jesus goes. People are literally, it says in, in chapter 3, literally crushing him. That's how desperately they want to get close to Jesus, many of them wanting to be healed. And what's interesting is at the exact same time his popularity is soaring, like going off the charts, the opposition is coming fast and furious, right? So we've seen opposition right away, not just uh, in, uh, in the temptation of Satan at the very beginning. There's that spiritual opposition, But then there's also human opposition. The Jewish leaders of the day uh, were not crazy about some of the things that Jesus was doing and saying. Uh, They accused him of of not being spiritual enough. Like, hey, John's disciples are fasting. You're not fasting. Your disciples aren't fasting. What's the deal with that? Uh, They accused him of breaking the Sabbath. They accused him of being a blasphemer. And it really comes to a head early in this book in chapter 3, in one of the sections we're not going to look at, but if you have your Bibles open, just scan up to to verse 6 of chapter 3, and you see that even then, this early, in Jesus's ministry, there is a plot uh, brewing to to destroy him, to, to kill him. Now, I want to set the stage that way because the first thing we're going to read in just a moment, like eventually we're going to get there, is Jesus calling his disciples by name to not just call them, but then to commission them to go out and to spread the news about the kingdom of God. And it, that may seem like kind of an odd juxtaposition. Like, why commission disciples now? Why have this intimate family conversation now when Jesus is such a polarizing figure already? When there's so much uncertainty swirling around them, I mean, you just imagine the stress of the disciples. they're going town to town, they don't know if they're going to be hailed as heroes or arrested as, as villains and enemies or enemies of the state. And yet Jesus chooses this moment to remind them that what ought to shape our identity more than anything else, more than anyone else's opinion around us, is the opinion of Jesus. This is true not just in human relationships, but in our relationship with God. Like nothing shapes our identity, for good or for bad, more than our human family. Nothing. There's no other human relationship that comes close. And yet, how much more when we talk about having a perfect Heavenly Father and a perfect elder brother in Jesus, should we understand that family relationship? Like when Jesus looks at you and calls you part of his family, that should anchor our identity more than anything else in the world. And that's what we're gonna talk about today, what it means to be part of Jesus' family. So we give our attention to God's holy word, beginning in verse 13, I'll read through the end of the chapter. And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to them whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonaedris, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Bezebel, And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my brother, my mother, and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said to them, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother. And sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our God, rock, and redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean to be part of Jesus's family? How do we even begin to get our heads and our hearts around this idea of Jesus looking at us this morning and saying, this is my family. These are my people. Nothing comes between us. How do we begin to grapple with this idea that, that Jesus knows us by name, he knows us better than anyone else knows us, and he still loves us and even likes us? even enjoys our company, even invites us around a family meal this morning. How do, we, how do we get ourselves there? How do we begin to live in light of that reality? Well, this passage gives us a way of thinking about belonging to Jesus' family. And it really is a way of just really thinking about the gospel, what it means to receive the good news about Jesus. And the, and the gospel is essentially this, that Jesus was rejected so that we might be accepted. Jesus was rejected, which we see in this passage, so that we might be accepted. Now, The first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is rejected, first of all, by his own family, as deluded. Did you catch that? Did you see just two little verses? But it really is an amazing moment early in the life of uh, Jesus's ministry. Um, His mother, presumably, and brothers visit him from Nazareth. It was about 20 miles away from where he is here, and they make that 20-mile trip not to congratulate him on how well things were going, uh, not to um, learn from him, because clearly he had some things to teach everybody, um, not to see if he was okay because they'd heard about all the controversy swirling around him, but to seize him. That's what Mark tells us uh, in verse... 21, when his family heard uh, about how much, even now, the crowds were pressing on him so much that that they couldn't even get something to eat. His family heard about that, and they went out to seize him, to bring him home. Why? Because they thought he was out of his mind. Think about that. Jesus's own family, the the people he grew up with and celebrated birthdays with, and um, you know lived with all of those years. They're hearing about all of this, and their conclusion is that he's out of his mind. And now he's embarrassing himself, and he's embarrassing the family. And it's time just to take him home and put him back in the carpentry shop. I know some of you have experienced this kind of rejection before. Uh, I know some of you uh, have parents who, who think you're crazy for believing in Jesus, or brothers or sisters who think you're nuts, who think you're deluded, Uh, Thanksgiving's right around the corner, so you might be reminded of that uh, sooner than you think. Uh, Others of you have friends who are fine with you being a Christian, but when it comes to you actually making decisions based on your faith in Jesus, like decisions not to do what they do and not to hang out with them at certain times, doing certain things, are like, what are you? Are you crazy? Why would you go that far with this Christianity thing? Lots of us understand the feeling of rejection from people simply because we... Believe in Jesus. And the, wonderf- the wonderfully encouraging thing about this little moment in Jesus' life is it reminds us that if you've got family issues, Jesus had family issues. Jesus knows what it feels like to be left out, to be left alone, to be rejected, because he himself experienced that from the people he loved the most the people who were supposed to love him the most. But he wasn't just rejected by his family as deluded. He was also rejected by the religious leaders as a deceiver. And I want us to feel the the sharp edge of what's happening here just by pointing out a few things in this text. First of all, in verse 22, we're told it's the scribes from Jerusalem who show up. So this is like the official delegation. Jesus has received criticism before. We see that in the first three chapters. He's been told by the Pharisees that he's breaking the Sabbath. He's been criticized by the people for not being, you know, religious enough. He's been criticized by the by the very religious people for hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Uh, but this, this is next level accusation. Like it's one thing to be called a Sabbath breaker or even a blasphemer. It's another thing for the official spokesman of Jewish leadership, the the theology PhDs of the day to show up and declare publicly that you are doing all of this as an agent of Satan, which is what they're saying. He is possessed by Zeebizable. That's another name for Satan. By the prince of demons, he's casting out demons. I mean, these are serious charges. These charges, you don't get more serious than this. They're accusing Jesus of deceiving everybody. And how does he respond? Well, how would you respond? I'm not sure I want to know how you respond. You'd probably respond the same way I would respond. But how does he respond to this? Well, in typical Jesus fashion in verse 23, he calls over his accusers and he tells them a story. (laughs) He shares a parable. Uh, It's a parable that may be familiar to you. It's, it's, It's one that Abraham Lincoln quoted in one of his speeches before the Civil War to describe the state of the nation in light of the brewing controversy related to slavery. And he talked about a house divided on this issue cannot stand, which proved to be the case. Here, Jesus is talking about a different house. He's talking about the house of Satan. He's talking about the kingdom of darkness. And this is basically his argument. He's saying, look, if your argument is that I am casting out demons as a demon myself, that would essentially be like Satan casting out Satan. That's basically what he says, right? He says in verse 26, Satan is rising up against himself. And he's like, that would essentially be like Satan punching himself in the face repeatedly. Uh, that would be like Satan dividing his own house or, or inciting a civil war in his own kingdom and then giving me all the credit. And Jesus is like, that just doesn't even make any sense. But he doesn't leave it there, does he? He goes on to extend, maybe change the illustration just a little bit. And he says, but if you really want to know what's going on, this is what's going on. A stronger man has arrived. Because this is the only thing that makes sense. If, if Satan's house is clearly being ransacked and plundered, something must have happened, right? And what happened, he says, is that a stronger man kicked in the door, tied up the owner, and helped himself to whatever was there. Now, in light of what Jesus is saying, it, it, it then leads into what is something of a, a theological puzzle in verse 28 and 29. I want to look at that again, because this, the, these are verses that theologians have spent a lot of time writing about, and pastors have spent a lot of time talking about. "'Truly, truly, I say to you,' Jesus says, "'all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit.'" Some of you have been thinking about that verse for the last nine minutes or so, right? You you haven't really heard anything else because you're like, what is that all about? You're thinking to yourself, if there is such a thing as an unforgivable sin, it would be very helpful for us to know what that is. And on a serious note, some of us are even wondering do my sins qualify? So just to do a deeper dive, notice in verse 29, if you just want to focus there for a moment, that Jesus specifies what this sin is. He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, okay, that's, that's the category of sin. And so we have to backtrack a little bit and remember that really beginning with the baptism of Jesus by the Holy Spirit at the beginning of Mark's gospel... The role of the Holy Spirit is defined as giving testimony to who Jesus is. So think about someone giving testimony in court. And the the Holy Spirit's job, both then and even now, through the Word of God, is to testify about who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners and the long-promised Messiah. And what these scribes were doing by saying, no, no, Jesus is speaking by an unclean spirit, they were effectively discounting, dismissing, rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus. One person, one theologian has put it like this, this sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven, not because it's too great for God to forgive, but because by its nature it excludes the possibility of repentance. In other words, if we reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit as it relates to Jesus, we are cutting ourselves off from the only one who can forgive us of our sins. Now, to be clear, the unforgivable sin is not suicide, as some people have suggested over the years. It's not murder. It's not adultery. It's not asking questions about your faith. It's not having doubts about your faith. It's not not asking questions about the Bible and God and the nature of evil and all of that. No, what's being described here is a deliberate, willful, even malicious rejection of the claims of Christ as they come to us through the inspired word of God. And by doing that, you are effectively saying, I want nothing to do with Jesus, and therefore I want nothing to do with the only one who can rescue, rescue me from my sin. And in that sense, it is unforgivable. Now, some of you are still wondering, still asking questions, well, how do I know that, that I haven't committed that sin or, or, or that I'm not in the midst of it right now? Um, I'll remind you of the words of the, the late theologian R.C. Sproul. He would get this question in class a lot uh, when, this, when these passages came up, and Sproul would often tell his class, you know, if you're worrying about committing this sin, it may be the clearest evidence that you haven't committed this sin, because those who commit it have hardened their hearts so much they don't even care that they've committed it. Now, even with that word of comfort to those who trust in Christ, I, we don't wanna dodge or step away from the very stern warning Jesus is giving here. And the stern warning is do not reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit and be deceived in thinking that Jesus is just deluded or just a deceiver or otherwise out of his mind or out of sorts. Instead, and this is the thrust of Mark's entire gospel, believe the gospel. Accept Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And when you accept Jesus in that way, something amazing happens. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus accepts you. Jesus welcomes you into his family. That's the second thing I want to talk about this morning. Not just that Jesus was rejected, but he was rejected for a purpose. He was rejected that we might be accepted into his family. First of all, as forgiven. You know, um, for all the press that verse 29 gets about the unforgivable sin, and rightly so, it, it deserves a longer explanation maybe even than we've given it, What really should stop us short is verse 28. Because there Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. All sins. And that includes the sins that you came in here this morning carrying Along with the shame of those sins, the sins that maybe even a few minutes ago, when we had a time of confession, you were too ashamed to even confess. That includes the sins that you alone carry because you've never told anybody about it. That includes the sins that happened a long time ago, but you still can't forgive yourself for. All sins. You're looking at me and you're thinking, okay, well, Ryan, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I did this week. You don't know what I've done in my life. You don't know the ways in which I'm running from the Lord right now. You don't know. So how can you say all sins? Well, you're right. I I don't know. But I do know what Jesus has done. And I do know how Jesus backs up this promise, because the rejection that we see in this passage by his earthly family is nothing compared to the rejection he experiences on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus was treated by his heavenly father as if all of these false accusations were true, as if he was the blasphemer, people said he was. As if he was the lawbreaker, people said he was. As if he was the deceiver and the sinner that people accused him falsely of being. Because on the cross, Jesus was our substitute. He took our sins to the cross. That is to say, he was punished as if he had committed all of your sins and all of my sins. There's an old hymn. Some of you probably know it. Jesus paid it all. Not Jesus paid 99.5% so that you've got 0.5% of penance to make up. Not Jesus paid for some. Not Jesus paid for the ones that, you know, you're really sorry about. Jesus paid it all. All. And what Jesus is reminding us in this passage is that when he says, as we sang a moment ago, come to me and find rest, he's not not giving you one of these, okay? He's not doing it through gritted teeth. He's not saying this morning, really? We're having the same conversation again? Because Jesus has paid for all of your sins. Your shame, your guilt, the power of those sins over you, the threat of condemnation, that ended on the cross. And so when I say that Jesus was rejected, he was rejected so that you might be accepted as forgiven and that you might, it actually gets better than that, that you might be accepted as family Think about what Jesus says in this passage. This this passage is sort of bookended by conversations, well, semi-conversations with his family. His mother and his brother show up a second time, or maybe it's the same time. We're not really sure the the distance in time between, but, but they're brought up again. I guess I can put it that way. They're brought up again in verse 31, and now they're waiting for him. And it's like, you know, when you're a kid or a teenager and it's like, hey, your parents are here. All right, and you leave. Well, his parents are there, and they're looking to have a conversation with him, maybe at that point to take him away. And Jesus looks at the people sitting around him. It's not just the 12 disciples. It's actually all his disciples, which included women, uh, included young, old. They're all sitting around listening to him, and he looks around the room, and he asks this question, who are my mother and brothers? See, that's actually, that too is a sharp question, because in this culture, Family was everything. Now, some of you, you know, come from non-Western cultures, and you know what this is all about more than Westerners do, okay? You know that in in many places, family is, like, nothing comes between family. Family is first all the time. And so for Jesus to ask in this context, who are you talking about, would have raised some eyebrows. But then he goes one step further, and he looks around, and he says, here, here is my family. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus looks around that room and says those words. Jesus looks around this room and says the same thing about you. Sometimes it's hard for us to really believe that all is forgiven with Jesus. And then it's even more difficult to believe that what goes along with that is this intense love where Jesus looks at you and says, you are my brother or my sister. There's another place in the Bible that says Jesus is not ashamed to call us brother or sister. He doesn't just tolerate you as part of his family. In a few moments, we're going to sit down at the table. I just want you to notice, there's no JV table for you, okay? There's no kids table. There's no kids table out there. For those of you who are just, you know, not quite there yet, this is a family meal. We sit around this table as those who are brothers and sisters together in Christ with Christ. So what does Jesus say here? He says, everyone who does the will of God, he is my brother. So there's a a little bit of a, a moment there that we need to reflect on before we wrap up. Because when Jesus calls his disciples to himself on the mountain at the beginning of this passage, Yes, he knows them by name. Yes, he has little nicknames for them, like the Rock and the Sons of Thunder. He's not, you know, he's not creating a new worldwide wrestling federation right there, but he is building a family because he knows them by name. He looks them in the eye. And says, this is what I'm calling you from here on out. Well, I don't want to be the Rock. Well, you're the Rock. That's who you are now. Okay. Um, He knows them intimately. He knows us intimately, and yet at the same time, this welcome to the family conversation is also a welcome to the family business conversation. Because the disciples weren't just there to congregate, were they? What does Mark call them? He calls them apostles, sent out ones. And what he says here is it's not a condition. It's not as if only people who always do the will of God 100% I would call a brother or sister. No, that sibling mentality is settled. But what he's saying is, welcome to the family business. And the family business is about doing the will of God. And why wouldn't it be? If you've been forgiven everything, if you've been welcomed into the family, even though you don't deserve it, what is the next natural question? What do you want me to do? How do I respond? How do I live? And Jesus is telling us, you make my will what your life is all about. Let me give you one example of that. Last night, several of us, even in this room, had the the privilege of celebrating 30 years of RCE, which is Romanian Christian Enterprises, a ministry that was birthed out of this church 30 years ago. Uh, Folks in this church felt the Lord leading them to care for orphans, especially those with special needs in Romania. And 30 years later, it's this amazing ministry that many of you have participated in, supported, visited, all the rest And what's really at the heart of this ministry is showing and telling the gospel. So at the heart of this ministry is telling people about the way in which God receives the least of these into his family. But it's also showing it. It's doing it. And so this is a ministry that holistically finds kids who are literally discarded, just left, their families say, we want nothing to do with you, and they are brought into loving families and brought into a loving home where they are treated like human beings and where they are showed time and time and time again, moment by moment, that they matter because they matter to God. There was a story last night of a young man with severe disabilities, blind, mute, left, left literally to rot in an orphanage. And he was brought in, and he was loved, and he was cared for until the day he died. And he was, he was sung over, and scripture was read over him, and he was told about God's love for him. And... That is what Jesus is talking about when he says, welcome to the family business. It's not just this ministry, it's other ministries and it's other opportunities that Jesus gives us to show and to tell the gospel, to say, I was once that child who was abandoned and discarded and even cut off, but Jesus found me and he brought me home. Jesus was rejected so that we might be accepted, that we wouldn't just Enjoy the privileges of the family, but we would give ourselves wholly to the family business. We have an opportunity to reflect on that now as we come to the Lord's table. So let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have set this table before us, that your mercy and your grace, your forgiveness, it's available to us now. Lord Jesus, that you have paid it all. We come to you now with the empty hands of faith, needing a fresh reminder at this table that we belong to you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.